Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Mala Nunn is an Australian author, screenwriter and director. Her latest book is Let the Dead Lie, the second Detective Emmanuel Cooper novel. Originally from Swaziland, she immigrated to Perth with her parents in the 1970s. Her twin passions are English and history and she spent some time in America working in theatre and film. She's written and directed a number of short films, including Servant of the Ancestors, which has won awards and been shown at film festivals all over the world. Her first novel was A Beautiful Place to Die, which was also the first in her Emmanuel Cooper series. The series is set in South Africa during the apartheid era and has scored her a Sisters in Crime Award for Best Adult Crime Novel and a nomination in the 2009 Edgar Allan Poe Awards. So thanks for joining us today, Mala. Oh, it's a pleasure. Now tell us, when did you decide that you wanted to be a writer? When did you know that you had this love for words? You know, I always had a love for words, and that was as a reader, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially as a child growing up in rural Swaziland. It was an absolute escape pod to get a book and read it, and it just seemed such a marvellous thing. But I didn't actually connect the fact that I could be the person to produce this magic. Mm. I just love sort of reading the books. And when I got a bit older, I still, I think my prime focus was I, I wanted, I did want to write, but I thought, oh, I think I want to write little bits here and there, but I really want to be an actress. And I, so I sort of took off on that part right. uh, before um, that. And, and even when I was making, uh, I, I then sort of realized that acting was really not my thing because I absolutely hated auditioning. Um and then I started working on a film script, mm. and that really got me into writing. And also, I just love the idea that I didn't have to present myself to a panel of people just to actually do the work. And so I started writing a little bit for film. Uh, but I think I've always had uh, an absolute love of stories. And um, after doing film, I bit the bullet mm-hmm. and decided to, to actually have a go at writing a novel, which is quite terrifying. Mm. because you, it's it's such a commitment and you always think, oh my gosh, what if it fails? That's, you know, a couple of years down the drain. But but I just wanted to do it. I think that's the thing. I just felt I had a story that I was in me. Mm. So when yeah, was so. that? How long ago was that that you decided to write a novel? Look, I, I've been working on film sets and making films for a few years and mainly working on film sets because when you work in film, it is a delicious... Um, jackpot win if you actually get to make a film. Mm. You spend an awful lot of time writing films, trying to make films, working on film sets. And I really wanted to write during that time, but I just, it felt like such a big commitment that I, I didn't go ahead. Then I went to, I went and I made a documentary with my mother in Southern Africa and I realized there were all these other things that were holding me back from writing about South Africa. One of them was a simple fear that I sort of didn't have a right to write about South Africa because 
I'm from a mixed-race community, and we've always been treated a little bit as if we have no place in that society, mm-hmm. you know, because we don't belong to either tribe. And mm. But, my yeah, my mother went back and she did this incredible ceremony, you know, which included her getting naked in a river in rural Swaziland and getting goat bile dumped on her. And it was, <laughs> it was full on hands to the wheel kind of stuff. And, and I just looked at that and I thought, you know, she knows she's an African woman. She's got every right to do whatever she wants. Mm. And it kind of made me feel quite foolish about not having the guts to write a novel. Right. You know, so she really inspired me to sort of think that there's certain things in life you should just do. Mm. And how long ago was that? Look, that was 10 years ago that she did that. And I made a documentary for SBS about about her ceremony and going back with her. And I came back from that and it really, in a weird way, it really let Africa, South Southern Africa, into me in a positive way. Because I'd always, and I never really liked it even growing up. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I always Uh, felt a bit of a stranger there. So, but writing a novel is very different to writing for film. And it's 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 a different syntax. It's a different pace. How did you get into the mindset of of the right techniques in order to transfer your writing into into writing a novel? Well, you know, the interesting thing is that most people have read novels, mm. but most people haven't read film scripts. So I think it's actually the t- film scripts are so much leaner and they're so much cleaner on the plot points and story points. You have to be very disciplined to work in that in that area. Mm. And um, so, but people generally don't sit down and write read screenplays for pleasure because it's a, such a visual art form. It's all about things that are going to be projected onto the screen. Yes. So you do learn to pare things down a lot from film and try not to put unnecessary things in. So you can take that to writing a novel. But the essential thing I think I had in terms of a transfer was was time. You know, I suddenly had time. I was a stay-at-home mummy, and I, I had time then. And I, and I, you know, I loved reading books. And it just felt like I really had no excuse to go ahead and also, you know, with film, you're writing it, but if you're forward-thinking on to making the film, mm. you're thinking it's a very expensive process and it takes a long time. And you can do films on the cheap, you know, just make them yourself. But it's always contingent on a group of people. Mm. But if you're a novelist, really, you can go to the local store and with $10 in your pocket, get all the tools you need to be a novelist. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. So in a way, you're freed up much more in terms of just some a pen, a paper, and then thinking, when this is finished, this is the product. If you finish writing a script, it's just the beginning of mm. a long process mm. that may or may never happen. I guess the same as a novel, but um, I think there's something about, you know, once you've finished a novel, you that's it. It's, it stands alone. Mm. So your first novel was A Beautiful Place to Die, which was also the first in your Emmanuel Cooper series. So... Did you always know that you were going to write that book? How did the idea come about? You know, what what made you think, oh, I'm I'm going to set set the book here, and it's going to be yeah. crime? Yeah, tell us you about know, that. I I'd always felt that if I was going to write about South Africa, that it had to be tremendously worthy and very political mm-hmm. and very deep. But I'm essentially not that sort of person. I mean, I, I love crime books. I love reading crime books. And when I went back to make my documentary with my mother, my my now husband came along. We got married in a traditional African ceremony. 
And then we traveled around afterward, and we went to a little town on the border of South Africa and Swaziland, and it was the most beautiful river. And I remember looking at it and thinking, isn't that interesting? It's a river, but it's a border as well between one kind of life and another kind of life. And I think that just sort of rested with me, came home, uh, edited my film, had a baby, and I was thinking about Southern Africa a lot anyway, and that was partly because I had my son, and it it never occurred to me that it would bother me that he would not have an African childhood. Mm. But it did. I just thought, oh, he's never going to know what it's like to smell rain when it comes down, and he's never going to know what it's like to feel to walk through that kind of country. So I was, I was becoming very sentimental, mm-hmm. essentially, about the place. And, and I mean, honestly, it wasn't as if I sat down and did a lot of thinking. Mm. I just got an image in my head, and it was like being handed a photograph. Mm. And, and it was a dead, there was a dead body in that river that I'd seen in South Africa. Wow. And it was on a border. And I thought, oh, my goodness, it's a crime book, and it's on a border town. And then it just kind of took off from there because that original image just kind of uh, pulled me into the story. Mm. And I, I was in the position of actually finding out why that guy had died anyway. I actually had no idea when I started. Mm. So some writers say that they plot out the whole story and others, other writers say they start with an image or an idea and they just go from there. Would it be safe to say you're the latter then and it just sort of unfolded? Yes, yes. And, and uh, I mean, I understand why people plot because it stops you from going off in veering off in odd directions and having to backtrack. But my process is very much, I actually love the discovery as I'm writing. Mm. I, it's sort of like sometimes my characters will do things and I'll go, gosh, that's amazing. I, or, although sometimes I get them in a situation where as, an, as their parent, I'm not clever enough to get them out of it. <laughs> <laughs> do, quite a lot, do quite a lot of that. What happens um, then? Do you have to kill your darlings then? ruthlessly and it's just an awful feeling yeah. so I just have a separate little folder of file where all my darlings are sent <laughs> or retired into in the desperate hope that one day I will come back and find them again and give them life <laughs> <laughs> so crime it usually involves a great deal of research so mm-hmm. how do you do that do you go to South Africa a lot or do you um, do your research in some other way uh, look, what I uh, essentially do in my first draft is in, in my books are set in the 50s, so obviously I'm aware of the bigger parameters that I have to stick with when I'm writing about the 50s. Mm-hmm. So I do a little, there's only very light background research on the 50s and then a bit more political research, but I write the first draft using common sense. Mm-hmm. And I, do some, I do some research, I've got a sort of a gallery of South African literature plus photography books mm. I'll go on the net I'll look at things on the internet although with the internet you you're not actually sure about the provenance of the knowledge so mm. it's fine but it's not really you know I can't take it but that that means anything really so I but I will put things into my story and then I send it off to um, a guy called Terence King, who is my police and you know my police and police re, um, editor, mm-hmm. and he's an ex-policeman and his dad's an ex-policeman. And what Terence does is he will read through my manuscript, mm-hmm. and he'll come back and say, "Marla, the uniforms were actually a car key that only became blue in 1956." Right. And the thing is, he but see, he will physically get in his car and he will drive to Pretoria, 
and he will sit down for two, like a whole afternoon, and he will go through the original files. Wow. So it's just an amazing gift that that's mm. happened because um, he loves doing that. Mm. He, he just adores the research uh, aspect of it. So I will do a little bit, and he will absolutely do the hardcore, deep research that just sort of has to be right. Mm. you know, in terms of the, the details. So I'm lucky that I, I do have him backing me up, and that leaves me free to actually just do story, first of all, again, with just my, my plain research that mm. pushes me through. And then he'll come in and he'll um, he'll basically give me pointers about where I've gone wrong and, and, cha- and tell me why I have to change things. A Beautiful Place to Die received rave reviews and you scored a Sisters in Crime award. Did you expect for your debut novel to be so successful? You know, no. I think you can dream, mm. and I certainly did dream, because I think you have to be a dreamer to be a writer anyway. Yeah. So I did dream. I thought, oh, but my dream actually went as far as, oh, I hope it gets published. Yes. You know, it was really, I just wanted somebody, and we'd had this conversation with my husband where he said, look, Marla, if you sell it anywhere, even if it's for like $1,000 in, <laughs> in like upper... Volta, <laughs> then we're going to take that as a sign that you should probably write a second novel. Mm. So our limitations, we just put the smallest, I mean, I put all these limitations on my dreams because we know writers, we know writers in film, we know writers in, in, in fiction, mm. and it's a very hard road. Mm. So tell us so, about the road to publication then. You finished the book. What did you do next? Well, look, I, I again, it was one of those fortuitous things where I hadn't actually finished the book. What, what had happened was um, my husband is a film producer and he had gone to film school with a friend, uh, a lady called Siobhan. And Siobhan decided after film school that she didn't want to be a producer. She wanted to go back to agenting. So I knew her socially. I didn't assume ever that she would become an age, my agent. But I was trying to get into a writing program where, you know, you go and they give you a week and you just get to write and you get fed and you get feedback on your work. And I really desperately wanted to do this. Mm. You know, I wanted some time to go and try and finish my novel. So I, I called Siobhan and said, look, I'm trying to get into this writing program. Will you read the first 30 pages of my manuscript? I think I had about 150 pages then. I said, will you read the first 30 and give me some feedback so my, my application is really strong? Mm. She said, fine. I got a call from her saying, I read all 150 pages. I love it. I want to represent it when you're finished. Wow. And I said, great. And I was feeling enormously confident, like, yeah, you genius. And I sent everything <laughs> off the writing program and was promptly rejected. <laughs> I didn't even get a phone interview. Oh, and they had rungs of what you could get in the last, the very last one from phone interview. I didn't even get that. <laughs> I just got a, thank you so much for your application. One of those letters, in other words, get lost. Oh, dear. Letters. And I was distraught. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I made a terrible mistake. And I called you all and I said, they rejected me. They, they, they don't want me. And she said, and this is where good agents are fabulous. She said, Marla, they have made a huge mistake because you're going to finish that book and we're going to get it published. <laughs> And that's what I needed at that stage because it's so devastating to get those letters where yeah. someone basically goes, oh, well, you tried, but you know what? It wasn't good enough. Yeah. And you think, oh, I secretly suspected that. <laughs> I secretly suspected it was no good and it was rubbish and, they, and this is a proof. But, um, you know, Siobhan just said, no, finish your novel. So mm. I went ahead and I did finish it and she took it, to, um, she took it out to publishers 
And I, but she was really specific when she said to me that publishers now are less generous than they were 10 years ago. So when you put a manuscript into a publisher now, you should assume, or you should make it to a stage where the publisher feels they can simply take it to the printer and say, print it up. Mm-hmm. So it has to be at a very high level. They no longer feel, oh, what a genius. We'll spend 10, we'll spend 10 months editing this with the, with the author. Yeah. They may do that if you're established, but if you're a first-timer, you should, you should do all the work. They should feel like they don't have to do very much work. That's, that's what I was told. So I did do a couple of drafts, and it was very uh, time-consuming, but uh, it was made very clear to me that the draft had to be, I mean, it had to be really excellent, in excellent shape. Yeah. So by the time, and so she took it out, and it went to acquisition at two places and failed. They didn't buy it. And then it, it went to Pam McMillan and they bought it. So, you know, Wonderful. very lucky. Rest is history. So you you say that you were a stay-at-home mum and you had the luxury of time when you wrote that first novel. Tell us about the writing process. Did you have a daily routine? And, and, and still now, when you, when you do your writing, when you're actually writing a novel, do you have a routine that you stick to or any um, particular things that you always do in order to get into the zone? Yes, well, the first thing I have to do to get in the zone is drop my children off at school. <laughs> yes, that's <laughs> because handy. I've noticed that I cannot enter the zone when I have two children running around who want to be fed and entertained. And, and that's, so um, the, my, my routine is actually fa- fairly simple. Is that I drop them off at school, I zip back, and I write for a couple of hours that I can write. Mm. And then I go and pick them up, and then it's all over. And then maybe I'll write a little bit in the evening after they're in bed. But what I've started to, to do now, and, um, and it is a, a real luxury, and I'm very happy I can have it, is I do go away for a couple of weeks during the year, mm. probably three three weeks, uh, three, maybe four weeks if I'm lucky, mm. where I actually go away to a, a friend's mum has um, a cottage in Pearl Beach. And I go away, then I have a full week of absolute no domestic duties, no children, nothing. I just write. Wonderful. And that is a tremendous luxury. But other than that, you know, I write between my life. Mm, yes. <laughs> I kind of, I, I have to. I, there is no ivory tower for me as much as I've asked for one. Um, there is none. I just have to write when I can. So how much time lapsed between when you finished the first novel and you decided to get stuck into the second? Well, you know, I was so hysterical about the first novel and I was so sure that it was going to fail and that it was never going to sell. I just had the deepest feeling in my bones. I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> That's who optimistic. Hell... <laughs> yeah. You know, who the hell was going to want to write, read a novel about it set in South Africa in the apartheid area? What was I thinking? <laughs> and I called my sister up and I said, I've made a terrible mistake. What am I going to do? And she said, start the second one. And I said, well, that makes no sense. She said, start the second one. I went, okay, I just started the second one because at least it kept me occupied. Yes, right. And then my husband said, you know, no, no, you, that's right, babe, just write the second one because even if the first one doesn't sell, the second one probably will. <laughs> <laughs> you need equally delusional people in your life <laughs> to help you with this task. So I had these two people, basically, my husband and my sister, whispering, my, just go ahead, go ahead. And now you'll sell the second one even if you don't sell the first one. <laughs> So I did. I just started writing the second one purely on adrenaline and fear. Wow. Did you know it was going to be Emmanuel Cooper? Did you know you were going to continue that? Yes. I had always felt that I wanted to write a crime series because I had 
found when I was reading crime, I would kind of, you know, I would sort of pick out, I picked up a Walter Mosley book and then suddenly I'd gone through six books with the same character. Mm. And I just, you know, I love that. And then, you know, you pick up a Henning Mankell and then you go through six books with that character. I quite love the process of knowing this person mm. and finding out more about them in a series of books. So it was always in my head that if I'd been lucky enough, but left to my own devices, I would have written one and then run away, you know, terrified. But but I had I had support of people basically said, you know, you want to write a series, do the second one. So tell us a little bit about your latest book, Let the Dead Di- Let the Dead Lie. Yes, I know it's a little bit of a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> so, so all the sounds are too similar. Anyway, um, so Let the Dead Lie is a continuation of A Beautiful Place to Die. So we've got the, the same detective, Emmanuel Cooper. But now his life has changed quite dramatically and he's living in Durban, which is a port city in South Africa. And he's suffered quite a few setbacks in his life. So he's in a very different place from where he was at the end of the last novel. Um, and it's, it's really quite a, a lean race against time. And it's, it's also about Emmanuel sort of, I think, finding his power again mm. and finding out who he is again in the process of trying to solve the murder of a little boy that he finds on the docks in Durban who's been, who's been um, killed. So, um, you know, so it's a kind of a discovery. So Emmanuel's trying to discover who the killer is, but Emmanuel is also kind of getting back to who he really is, basically. Mm. And that is somebody who's emotionally and intellectually engaged and loves to be physically involved in his work because he's, he's yeah, he's sort of been sidelined. So for me, it's a, it's, it's a classic... Um, character going through situation, finding out who they are, but it's mm. a real race against time because he hasn't got the luxury of sitting around for two or three weeks. He has to get, you know, he has to solve this mystery really quickly, otherwise he himself is going to be in really huge trouble. Mm. So with your background in writing films, have you ever considered turning your novels into screenplays? Yeah, you know, uh, that's one of those... Uh, sideline dreams where it really is like, oh, wouldn't that be great? But the truth is I quite love doing novels. Right. And to me, film is a whole other thing. And, and again, you know, when I finish my novel, it's finished. In film, you would finish a screenplay and then becomes the incredibly painful task of shopping it round mm. and getting bites and getting interest. And we, we went through this sort of, you know, I went to this, it was a, relatively emotional process to begin with and I've now disengaged from it which is about a year ago we had quite a lot of interest from a company run you know a major movie sales company who will remain unnamed and the 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 novel went all the way I think to to like the personal reader and then it was turned was turned back right and you think but this is the thing about film it's such a dream maker yeah you know, it's so big. It's such a dream maker. It's so delicious. Oh, wouldn't that be fabulous? Mm. And then you kind of, and then no. Mm. And you have to be prepared for a series of those things where you get quite close and then you have to pull back. So so for me, I just love the idea that uh, I've been given a chance by Pam McMillan and Atria Books and Pam McMillan in England to sit down, write, and finish my product. And then, it, then I go to a bookshop and wow, there it is. Yes. Yeah, I don't. I don't have to wait for some <laughs> movie star to pick it up and go. I think it's great. I, yeah. it, it's. It, I get a finished product and it's out there, and people get to read it. I get the feedback. I mean, that is not to say that um, over a glass of wine in the evening, my husband and I don't pay. Well, for who would you cast as? <laughs> 
that was my next question. (laughs) (laughs) Since you've obviously thought about it. Well, you know, I have never been able to come up with a good suggestion. Really? Yeah, I feel quite... Like I have friends call, like a a friend called the other day and said, oh, I've just got it. I think maybe Liam Neeson. What do you reckon? I'm Mm. like, "Mm, I don't know. (laughs) And then, you know, somebody else, I haven't forgotten the suggestion. I, I get some really, really odd ones. And um, so I actually personally don't have a feeling about who it should be. I kind of veer to and fro. And, mm. and unfortunately for me, too, I have a husband who works in film. Yes. So if somebody makes a suggestion, he will say, oh, that guy's box office has been down for three years now. <laughs> You'll never get a movie up with that. So it's harder to be romantic about it when you've got somebody who actually yes. is in the business. So, are you now working on the third? Yes, I am. <laughs> lucky, lucky me, I feel just really very blessed because the Pam McMullen in Australia and in England and Aphia Books in America have given me another two book deal. So, I get to write four Emmanuel Cooper mysteries in total. Mm. So, I've got book number three and book number four, and I'm starting to write, I'm working on book number three at the moment. Right. And um, and are you still enjoying the process? Are you still discovering Emmanuel? Loving it. Loving it. And partly that's because Emmanuel is not a big talker anyway. You know, so he never came to me and just offloaded and blah, 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 and told me all about himself uh-huh. at all. He's not that kind of guy. So yeah. when I get back, I do have to, spend, have to spend quite a lot of time just easing him in and going, come on, Emmanuel, give me a bit more. You know, let's let's let me find out a bit more about you because he's not he's not a new age guy in that he doesn't feel like I'm his therapist. Yeah. You know, so I I actually love finding out more about Emmanuel as I work, and he's he's to me is a really interesting guy. He's very complicated and um, complex, and he's one of those creatures who is certainly of his time, but sort of rises above the time that he's in because he's got a tremendous amount of experience of the world. So for him, South Africa is not the be-all and end-all. He's been out. He's seen the world. Mm. So he's a little bit more sophisticated than the society that he's living in. And do you plan to continue writing this series or do you have other plans for other genres even? Uh, look, I will write the next two and then I'll, I guess I'll see how I go. But I do actually have one of those classic little books that's been sitting in my bottom drawer now for <laughs> probably six years. I keep thinking, oh, come on, it's not even a long book. I can get it done quickly between the other books. But I can't. So I think that after I finish my fourth Emmanuel Cooper novel, I might want to take a bit of a rest. I might not because actually I've got another little storyline that I probably would like to do with Emmanuel at the end there. So I haven't put a, a book limit on Emmanuel yet. I think he's going to do that for me. Right, but is the other book crime as well, or no? It's it's, it's a bizarre. This is why maybe I haven't finished it. <laughs> it's a really bizarre mix of like, uh, what do you call it? You know the South American magic realist tradition. Oh yes. Yeah, well, this is sort of a magic realist little book set in China. Oh. God knows where that came from. Right. But it just did, and it's just there, and it's sitting there, and I've got 40 pages of it kind of going, well, when you have time, I'll come back to me. It's obviously something that you need to explore, I think. 
Yes, there's something, there is something there because that story will not die. Yes. That little idea keeps coming back to me. So, so maybe after the fourth book, I, I would do this other one. But uh, certainly I have got other things that I would like to write about, yes. Mm. And finally, what was, what's your advice to people who are listening who want to do what you're doing, who want to be writers, who, you know, where you were, who are where you were um, before you wrote your first novel? Look, I think the the only advice I would give people quite is really simple, which is to write. Mm. I mean, that is. I know it's, it's it seems ridiculous, but you do actually have to make a pattern of writing. You have to make space for it in your life, no matter how busy you are. Mm. And I think what people also have to feel really is um, that whether or not you feel like you're working toward publication or not, writing is in and of itself a beautiful gift mm. in which you can you can express yourself creatively. So please do do it because you love it and because it makes you feel good and enjoy it. Try to enjoy the process. And I know that's hard because you're somehow terrified it's all rubbish, but you know it never is because you're expressing yourself. Mm. Whether other people feel that or, or um, concur with that or not, I think it's an act of creation, and I think you you have to go ahead and you have to create, and love the idea that you're creating it. Wonderful. And also read. Mm. Read. Because that's like eating. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, and on that note, thank you very much for your time today, Mala. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars and online learning, as well as information on our regular competitions where you can win books, movie tickets and literary experiences at www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au or visit me on my personal website, www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.